hello, and it gives me immense joy and pleasure to say this. Welcome to The Trumpet, the official podcast of Elephant Room Productions, which is a sentence that I have not said in almost a year now, it feels like. Um, as always, I am your host, Robert Jean Pelleccio, in a slightly new surrounding. out of the way. Um, but we are back, as we announced recently. We are uh, doing our revamped version of the Ears reading program. Um, and I am super, super excited to invite on today our first playwright of 2021, Nick Malakow. Nick, thank you so much for coming on today. Hello. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I just, I have missed tremendously having these conversations with playwrights and just uh, theater in general. Um, so it's just, it's, it's just so nice to have a, uh, a theater conversation again. Um, I hope I remember how to podcast. Um, I think I was pretty decent at it before, but who knows? Um, so I think I remember what I would normally ask just to jump in the conversation or jumpstart the conversation. We're doing, oh, we're doing it live, even though this isn't live. Um, <laughs> Nick, um, can you please just uh, start off by introducing yourself and talking about um, your theater background and it not necessarily uh, just playwriting if you are, if you have other theater hats that you like to wear. Sure, absolutely. Um, so again, first off, thank you so much for welcoming me and having me here. My name is Nick Malakow. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm currently based in the um, Boston area. Um, and I have, I guess, just a little bit about my theater background. Um, I've definitely been a storyteller and a writer um, for as long as I can remember in a lot of different ways. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I remember writing, handwriting my very first 100 page novel, um, which I still have, which is very terrible. Uh, but since a very young age, I've, I guess I've always known that I wanted to be a writer and a storyteller. Um, I also grew up in, um, in Northeastern New Jersey, very close to Manhattan. Um, so going to plays, going to theater was always a large part of my life. Um, and I guess probably like a lot of people, my entryway into theater when I was in high school was definitely as, as an actor and as a performer. Um, but I've also just, like I said, simultaneously been a, been a writer throughout my life. Um, you know, when I was in high school, instead of going to summer camp, I would go to creative writing programs. Um, I was a creative writing concentrator in um, undergrad as well. Um, and it was really at college that I first dabbled with playwriting as um, uh, just as a, as a form of writing, as a form of storytelling. And I discovered at that point that that way of telling stories through dialogue and action was um, really uh, just the best way for me to um, uh, for me to create characters and um, communicate them. Um, right out of undergrad, I became a teacher uh, and teaching English and theater um, for about ten years, uh, and I still am a teacher. Fifteen years down the line, it's a huge part of my identity. And I would say, right after undergrad, I very much um, I enjoyed playwriting, but I wasn't sure that it could coexist with my life as a teacher or um, <laughs> sure what what that what exactly it, it, it would mean to to have playwriting be kind of a legitimate part of my life as a as a business. 
Um, so I wrote I, I had a slightly opposite experience actually because yeah. I teach I a teacher in a sense that I direct youth productions and teach theater, but uh, yeah. I I was of the mindset that you know I, I am now making that work alongside. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I, I apologize. Yeah, go on. Yeah, excellent. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote a lot of plays right out of undergrad as a teacher that are very much in the hobby drawer, hobby drawer that I haven't looked at since then. Um, and uh, for, for really the first 10 years of my life out of college, um, I thought of myself more as a teacher. Then I went to grad school um, uh, for actually my master's in theater education. So not even a playwriting master's, but it was at that, um, at that program that I took a course uh, in theater literature that was specifically geared towards um, uh, emphasizing plays that explored characters who lived at um, unique and specific identity crossroads. Um, and that course kind of uh, was a big light bulb moment for me um, and a big eye opener for me. It, um, it, it just made me realize what um, I guess I was missing from the stories that I had been consuming up until that point and watching and enjoying um, as a multiracial person, as a queer person. Um, I just, you know, uh, I always find myself gravitating towards pretty small, intimate stories, a kind of slice of life, but universal stories. And of course, I would find that those stories were often populated by white characters or yeah. um, by characters that were neutral, but really neutral coded as, um, as white heterosexual characters. So um, it was really that class that made me realize, huh, okay, so as a playwright, I think, or as a storyteller, I'm really interested in telling stories um, that examine people who live at those interesting intersections like myself, um, and that kind of jump-started, I, I would say, what is now my, my current playwriting career. Um, and, you know, I wrote, wrote things and some, started submitting stuff with, with real earnest, I would say, about four or five years ago. So, and uh, forgive me if you said this already, but uh, do, you, do you, current, you still currently teach? I do, yes. What, yeah. what, su what subjects do you mainly focus on? I know you mentioned you went uh, to grad school for theater. Um, do you also, do you only teach theater? I'm thinking back to uh, the theater teachers of my high schools who were, uh, how, how do I say it? It was English teacher with a special assignment was oh, how yes. they <laughs> classified it. Yeah, that is, uh, and that's how I started out in my first job. Uh, you know, I was certified in Pennsylvania and they didn't have a, a theater certification. They had an English certification. So I was certified to teach English, but I've always been a joint English and theater teacher. And the reason why I went to grad school is because I realized, you know, 10 years down the line that I was really passionate about teaching theater, but there are just certain things that I wasn't trained for, certain things that I didn't, I wasn't pedagogically uh, yeah, trained for to be a theater teacher. Um, so I've, I've been a lifelong uh, or a career long combined English and history or English and uh, theater teacher. Theater. Yeah. yeah. And um, what, what, uh, what age level do you teach? Uh, so my first school I taught at was high school um, and currently and the next job that I have lined up is a middle school job so um, sixth through eighth grade um, which has been a delightful surprise uh, I know that people usually think uh oh middle school um, yeah. you know but uh, it's no, that, been, that, that, that's yeah. most of my experience I'd say it's, I'd say a lot of the uh, the show classes my partner and I do are um, they generally go as young as nine or ten they go up to high school but what we found is generally once, you know, we used to have people go all the way up through high school, 
Um, and what we found in recent years is by the time people get into that 15, 16, 17 range, you know, they're now competing with their own high school, you know, musicals and their own high school summer programs and things like that. So we do, we do kind of tend to now peter out around that 15 year old range. So I've become very adept at the <laughs> early high school, you know, middle school range. And, uh, you know, it also makes me think back on um, my theater teachers who, when I was doing those camps, I thought must have been in their 50s um, <laughs> and how old they may or may not have actually been. Of course, yeah. Um, so when uh, in your um, in your theater, and we'll get back to playwriting in a moment, but do sure. you focus more on, um, you know, teaching the history of theater, teaching the other concepts, or do you do the do like show classes and high school musicals and actually direct productions? Sure. Yeah, kind of the whole shebang. Uh, okay. My first job, I was very elective based. So I've taught, you know, acting, improv, directing, musical theater, kind of in yeah. semester long electives, and then also directed the productions. And in my my middle school jobs that I've had, they've been general theater classes, um, which yeah. as a lot of general theater classes have leaned towards, you know, performance in some way, shape or form. Uh, but uh, yes, and then also directing directing the middle school musicals and plays and all the all the hilariousness and joy that comes with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's you know it's something my partner and I discuss a lot. But um, I, I think that there is a real need and relevance for a non show specific theater education at that age. Um, you know, you, you think a lot about the um, fundamentals of acting or intermediate acting of the college level, but you get so many of these show classes that, I mean, they're a class in the sense that there's the word class in it and you're teaching the togetherness of, you know, ensemble work, but, you know, very, you know, having that foundation of what's stage left, what's stage right, or just how to create a character. Um, sometimes, you know, we feel that it's a little bit of uh, a time jumble to try and fit that all in and try to rehearse and put up a play uh, at the same time. So I think it's oh, wonderful yeah. that there is that kind of separation where you're able to, uh, you know, instill those concepts separately and then, you know, do the shows from there. Oh, yeah. um, and now do you still, um, well, by still, I mean, let's take the last year off the table um, because... <laughs> I don't know there's been a slight inconvenience for the theater community and the world at large. Um, but do you still, um, other than teaching and playwriting, um, do you still explore any other aspects of theater like performance? Um, you know, I think uh, I, I really enjoy performing. And since high school, I have come to terms with the fact that I'm a supremely mediocre actor. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I love it, but I also don't need to do it. Um, I really do. Uh, I really do love directing, uh, but specifically in educational theater because I like the um, the educational piece that comes along with that. So right. yeah, I really, I, I really identify hard to like define my my identity. I would say definitely teacher, playwright, director, educational director. Um, okay. Yeah. Great. Um, well, in that case, since we're barreling towards this direction anyway. Um, can you please speak a little bit about the defectors and um, just kind of give us a quick setup of the scene we're going to be hearing today? Sure. Um, so the defectors is a play that centers around two humans, Ale and Karina. 
Um, and they meet on an online pro-recovery eating disorder support group message board. Um, and a lot of their early interactions take place in this virtual space. They first sort of see each other interacting with other people on the boards, and then they start direct messaging each other um, and eventually realizing that they live fairly close to one another. Um, and then eventually they take the leap to meet in person um, because at the same time that they're in this virtual space, we also do see glimpses of them outside of that space, interacting with other humans in their lives um, and just the way that those characters help or impede their recovery journeys. And I think that they're looking for, um, I guess something, something beyond who's in their lives right now and also something beyond that connection on the message board. And then they interact and they meet um, and, you know, interesting, interesting things or what I like to say, think are interesting things happen. Um, I guess at the same time, there's that central narrative, um, the idea of this support group, I've tried to theatricalize as well as kind of, kind of a chorus um, that comes in and out of the piece. And one of my hopes with with that was to really just take a look at the uh, narratives that we use to represent certain struggles in the media um, and try to diversify that um, and complicate it. Um, and uh, so I, I think that is also kind of a key, um, you know, a key aspect of the play that I that I is very important to me. In addition to that central story with Karina and Ale. Um, and the scene that uh, you're going to be seeing a clip from or hearing a clip from in this podcast is um, between Ale and Karina uh, in their first, the first time that they meet in person uh, about halfway through the play after they've been connecting online. All right, great. Uh, well, if you are watching this episode, let's take a watch. If you're listening to this episode, let's take a listen. Scene 12, next step. Ale is alone sitting on a bench in front of Darwin's. A sandwich board shows some kind of Thanksgiving-themed sandwich special. He is alone for a moment. Karina enters at a distance. She doesn't approach at first and stays out of view. She thinks twice about staying, turns to leave, but Ale notices. Darwin's? On Cambridge Street? Karina turns around. Um, hey. Vague, uh... Um, vague souvenir. Yeah, souvenir. They look at one another. So you're. Uh, hey, oh, um, oh, oh, oh. Uh, yeah, never mind. You, yeah, you go. I, you, um, yeah. I... So here we are at Darwin's. Yeah. You're a guy. Is it that obvious? Kinda. Yeah. You're uh you're black. Okay, yep. So we're making lots of weird identity related observation things. Oh, I, I, I didn't mean for it to, to sound no. um, right. like, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not white. Uh, my name's uh, Alejandro. Uh, you don't have to. I mean, you don't need to say your name. Oh. Um. Because I'm not going to say mine. Oh. Okay. But we are here. Yeah. We are meeting here. Yep. At Darwin's. 
Yes, yes, that, um, that seems to be where we're meeting. Fuck, this is so stupid. Uh, look, if you don't want to talk to me anymore because I'm a guy and that's weird and you hate Whoa, me and chill. I- that, not that. Just, we're at a restaurant. Oh. Um, we're at a restaurant where I created my username for my online eating disorder support group because I was trying to prevent some binging black hole of death on friggin' bougie sandwiches some lonely night years ago when I was crying in a booth on a corner of my laptop. Oh. Trigger warning. Sorry. I, I mean, that that's okay. Like, what else do I think about, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I guess it was a stupid place to meet. Good job, Karina. No, I, I could have pointed it out too. Good point. Your fault too. Karina. Your name's Karina? Shit. Ale. That's me, Alejandro. Hello, Ale. Hi. Well, I guess here's hoping neither of us are crazy stalkers, right? Might as well just give me my address and phone number. Uh, that's, that's not necessary. I work up the street, so you can stalk me there. Lots of strange men do anyway. Up the street? Inman. Ali turns to look at Karina. Holy, wait, you work at the Ed Center. Oh, you know? I knew there was something familiar. Yeah, I took, I, I wanted to take um, a few months ago, a painting class. I'd just gotten out of my program. My mom was asking me to do something to stay out of the house because I think she was worried I was gonna kill myself. Trigger warning. Karina makes a gun motions and shoots it. That's us, Min Square Adult Ed Center. Painting with David Deckland. He sucked. The Ed Center sucks. I couldn't last two classes with him and he like really smelled. Like, like old cheese smelled. Oh, don't get me started. We have a specific Febreze just for Declan Knight. <laughs> I, I can see why. So strange men come and stalk you at work? Just one. Phil? You remember. And your ex? Oh, he's nice. He's not a stalker. Oh, too bad. It's good to have a villain. I, uh... I actually don't think I want to talk about Phil. Oh, okay. Um, so vague souvenir? Yeah. What is that, that name? Oh, uh, it's like, you know, not, not a new phrase, more, more like a, like an old thing. Like, a, like it comes from this, like, like, um, it's a reference. You wouldn't know it. It's not like a popular saying or anything. Kind of, it's, it's like, it's, it's French. I mean, yeah. Uh, what? It's, you know, it's like a name of a scent. A scent? Yeah, like a perfume. A perfume. Vague souvenir. Never seen that one at Macy's. It's an old unknown perfume. An old discontinued vintage rare unfindable French perfume. Oh, okay. Do you 
like those things. Sure. Yeah, I guess. Sure. You do uh, smell interesting. Um, In a good way. <laughs> uh, great. We don't have to. I, I, I'd... I, I'd tell you the story of my name, username, I mean, but we're sitting underneath it. Yeah. what Uh, it was what was i thinking here we um we we could go somewhere else if you like that's all right no that's um i mean i should get home soonish i mean my my roommates they're you know kind of productive girl power take back the night whatnot oh you've got roommates yeah me too my mom so you're gay. I date men. Uh-huh. I, I don't just date men. Sometimes I date people of other genders. So you're an everything kind of guy. <laughs> sure. Uh, but but this isn't... Um, oh, my uh, God. Okay. No, no, definitely. Okay. No. Yeah, no, no, You're Jesus. not. <sighs> Good. On the same page. We're on the same page and at the same paragraph. <laughs> you like perfume i like perfume god i should have made up some story or something anything instead of um it's a it's a freaking strange weird ass um smells are nice i like smells not david declan other smells (laughs) grass that's probably my favorite pavement when it rains I paint like flowers and stuff and still life at the ed center for free. But like, you know, school too, when I was there, I like appreciating stuff with my senses too. Do you have a lot of perfumes? Um, I guess I, um, I guess I collect it. Oh. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, there is a collection of uh, obsessive types. We, we are known to be obsessive types, right? We? Me. I, I mean, I, I mostly identify with, um, I mean, restricting behaviors, like the, the profile of an anorexic type, uh, m- more than the binge purge, but it, sometimes I, you know, I don't really want to. Um, you don't have to. Like talk about this or just this or only this. My, uh, my mom used to like this perfume, Lolita Lampica. Yeah? You know it? Um, it comes in a purple apple. My ma too. Shit. You're like fucking a Lord and Taylor catalog. <laughs> it does come in a purple apple, like a weird ass nightmare fairy tale purple apple with gold leaves. It's like candy, like candy, but weird. Like good and plenties. Um, it's violet with a weird note, uh, licorice. That's the sweetness, but with an interesting touch. I loved that smell, but I can't smell a, smell it without thinking about my mom and she sucks. I wish there was something that smelled like it, but didn't make me think of my sucky ass mom. Um, I can think on that. Karina looks at Ale. What? This, uh, this, 
you know, I don't know why I asked us to be here. Oh. Like that was super dumb. I was more or less at my lowest of low here at this place coming up with that username crying to a freaking turkey avocado. We can um it was uh, nice. But I mean, I think I gotta go. Uh, yeah, totally. I don't um yeah, no worries. I um it's not it's just the place. I I, I can smell the bread baking. I yeah, I I can smell it. Yeah. Um Karina is meeting about to leave. Thanks for meeting up with me, LA. Uh, vague souvenir, which one? Whichever you like. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna. Karina exits. LA is left alone and reacts to Karina's departure. Lights, transition, end of scene. And we're back. Um, so to uh, uh, peel back the curtain a little bit about um, how we do this. Um, I've spoken before about my experience with uh, how we run the EARS program. Um, normally, when we do a piece for the Elfin EARS reading program, I do not read it ahead of time so that when we get to the reading, my initial reaction to it and my uh, feedback can be in the moment and unprepared. Um, and this time was no different. So not only did I, uh, not only did I get to wait until we read it, uh, to actually, uh, you know, absorb this play. Um, we actually read it about an hour and a half ago before we started talking. So it is very fresh in my mind. Um, it was very visceral. Um, before I, get into specific questions I want to ask you about it. Um, I'll turn it over to you. What was the main inspiration behind this play and what led to the creation of this play? Yeah, um, I mean, I think, the, um, so the Beehive, which is the name of this fictionalized message board um, is based off a, uh, an online, an actual online support group that for a period of time was definitely very important in my life. Um, and I thought a lot about just my um, relationship to that uh, to that site and to that space. Um, I am really interested in exploring mental health issues, um, specifically in young adults when they are at this kind of point in their lives where they're departing from the, um, uh, I guess, from the potential support systems or safety nets that may have accompanied their teenage years um, and they start having to become their own mental health advocates and finding and understanding how to support themselves and to um, live you know at their full selves going forward so i was definitely i was really interested in um, both just that mental health it's from a general standpoint exploring that um, piece and then also this specific community. I think like I said earlier, I was interested in also just diversifying and um, complicating the idea of what, um, who, who struggles with body image issues and who struggles with eating disorders. Um, in the media, I think there is a, a couple of specific narratives that um, tend to skew white, cis, female, um, kind of a specific um, you know, a, a specific set of tropes 
um, that come along with media uh, that tackles these issues. Um, and there's just such a rich and layered world that um, should be should be examined and looked at and appreciated and understood. Um, and that's really just one of the main things I was hoping to to do with this piece. I think I mean, you definitely I picked up on that definitely. I mean, I I especially um, love what you said earlier before you know we got into this place specifically, but you talked about um, kind of the representation in uh, you know of queer characters and and not just queer characters, you know characters of any non cis white um, group, uh, and how even when even when we do get that representation, it's often it's often tilted through the lens, I feel, of look at fill in the blank. I mean, I was, you know, no shade towards Disney, but can we get a top 10 list of all of the first ever gay characters that Disney has claimed to put in a movie? Um, so um, I, I really picked up on, you know, and, and in reading this, I read um, the character of Ale and... Uh, I, I gotta say, it not not only was the character very believable, he was specifically believable for me because um, I I feel like you may have secretly met me at some point and I didn't realize it. Um, now I I have never struggled with um, an eating disorder, although I do have slight uh, body dysmorphia issues, um, and I you know I am not a part of the Latinx community, but there were a lot of checkboxes that. Um, I don't often see represented um, that I kept feeling um, over the past year. I have been very open with this, but I have struggled with anxiety and anger related issues um, that boom, that was easy to tap into right away. Um, I particularly liked um, uh, there is a line early ish on, but kind of towards the midway point where I believe it's Karina asks him, um, if he's, you know, asks him if he's gay and his response is, um, I date men, yes. Not exactly putting himself in one box, which um, if my watch can get picked up on uh, camera <laughs> is, uh, yeah, but yeah, no, I, I, you know, I identify as bisexual. I came out um, about a year ago after um, being very openly gay for many, many years. So I kind of went... I kind of went backwards with it. You think normally it's uh, <laughs> normally you, you pretend to be straight for a while and then come out as bi. Uh, I was I was very openly gay for many years. Um, but that being said, I I want to ask about that because as you know, as a bisexual man, it is very tough to find that kind of visual representation in media that's not the throwaway bi character or the character who thinks they're bi and turns out to be gay or fill in the list, you know, fill in the list of any other harmful or even if not harmful, just not overall helpful tropes. Um, so what, uh, what led to that decision about uh, his character? Yeah, I think that, um, again, just kind of to reiterate or back to that notion of people who live at specific identity intersections. I think that's definitely something that um, something something that impacts me, uh, you know, as uh, I'm 
half Dominican, half Ukrainian. Um, I, I too, I identify as queer, not specifically gay, not specifically straight. Um, you know, I often find that media or literature or stories about parts of my identity um, kind of tackle or address parts of my identity, right? Um, right. So when I think of what is the what is the the gay canon or what is the Latina canon of um, media or plays, um, I often find myself struggling to see myself in um, you know in these works that are supposedly for my identity. Um, and so I would say that's definitely at the root of both just the the decision to populate this play with people who live at those specific identity crossroads that they live at. Um, but then also just my my body of work as a whole, um, I, I would say kind of tackles a similar cross section of people who find themselves um, uh, who find themselves pretty frequently um, boxed in to different boxes, but also not seeing themselves in the canon or, you know, the, the social norm um, and just living in those liminal spaces. Um, and I think that, you know, as someone who lives in those liminal spaces, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I used to see it only as kind of, you know, feeling doubly marginalized, but now I see it as, as just having an interesting view on the world and being able to see certain systems or issues from uh, you know, from from a slightly different angle, um, and I just decided I want to reflect that kind of systematic view in my writing. Uh, the other thing I found really, really fascinating, um, and we touched on this ever so slightly, was the the separation of the real world and the online world. Um, I, you know, the kind of. Uh, prevalence of message board sites uh seems to have almost faded a little bit um unless it's yeah. for a very specific uh group but you know there are the the reddits and the you know twitter conversations and you know all that that we find ourselves engrossed in every day um so i thought it was really unique the the way you've written out the beehive uh boards um reading it was no easy task and i think you will see that yeah. when you uh <laughs> when you get the recording um lauren was very very helpful in how she split up those lines but i imagine if i were to direct this piece that would be a that would be a huge challenge so um how did you come up with that idea of how to specifically layer those lines or you know how you know if you were casting it how to split up that ensemble as to which lines were which online presence because I got the sense that the the char unless specifically noted, the characters that we are referred to as as our online handle are not always necessarily saying the same, you know, beehive lines when it's in the cacophony. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, and this is actually one of the reasons why I'm super excited to um, hear it read aloud because I've never heard it read aloud before and. I'm super excited to just find collaborators to work on this because I'm still figuring out what does what is this online world live and breathe like. The way I approached it um, is I do have in my mind, I guess, kind of maybe five five or six distinct personas um, that exist in the Beehive, and then also I wanted there to be 
just room uh, for um, just more or more yeah. people or more of an ensemble, uh, just more voices. Um, so, you know, at this, at this point, um, and I, I, I wanted to just not limit myself into really prescribing every single line um, and just to play around with the text and hopefully in upcoming development opportunities, find a, find a director and a dramaturg who really want to kind of, and actors who want to play through and talk through what that text could be. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought I was it was very fascinating finding. because, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to. Uh, no, yeah, because I, I was just saying, yeah, because I'm, <laughs> I'm still finding, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm understanding what that might look and breathe like as a live piece. Well, I think what was really fascinating is, you know, there was, you know, there were definitely elements in the script and, uh, you know, we're going to see, you know, you saw this in um, the scene we just played, but there were definitely elements in the script that were the traditional, you know, these lines indicate a line runoff or, a, you know, an overlap or something like this. The beehive lines were always different. Um, there were some that were going left to right. There were some that were layered this way and then under and then above. And then, so it, it you know, I, I don't know if, um, you know, I, I hope it comes across in the audio. Uh, I feel like in, you know, live performance, there would be a lot to play around with in terms of when each line starts um, in the previous one. Um, what I also thought was really fascinating because we all kind of discussed and I got this visual in my head of, you know, what it would look like in the online forum, but you also were very specific at some moments to say when these online conversations are happening, they should not be staged as though the character is at a computer. So how did you make that decision in when to present it as the message board forum and when to present it as two people having a conversation just in the online space? Yeah, I think that a lot of that, um, a lot of that had to do with Karina and Ale and their evolution of their relationship. Um, you know, I wanted, part of what I wanted to examine in this and what I hope I am starting to examine in it is the, potential for connection and the limitations of connection with, you know, on the online world and message board and forums like these um, to specifically with them play with the moments where they genuinely feel like they're slightly more connected or something more than just kind of voices or, or um, you know, cacophony uh, in the ether that is not really clicking um, to kind of juxtapose their conversations and their interactions with um, some of that babble um but also in the in the babble or in the, in the choral parts to have moments for those characters or for that ensemble of you know this is this is a safe space there this is a, a space of connection for them even if it's not you know even if they're not together yeah i i also um i appreciated uh th this is kind of a weird non sequitur but um there was a piece i read uh, a couple of years ago, um, I, unfortunately for the life of me, I cannot remember the name of the piece or the playwright. It was something I was, it was a very uh, unpolished piece, but there was a, um, it was a piece I was reading um, that relied very heavily on um, a joke. I don't even know if you could call it that about trigger warnings where by the end of the page, you know, the joke worked at first. Um, 
but I was not sure by the end of it if the playwright was making a commentary on whether trigger warnings were necessary, whether the overuse of trigger warnings uh, were at stake. Either way, um, I thought you towed a very fine line, and I really appreciated it, um, of the the way I kind of interpreted it was um, these were a group of characters who, um, and the world as a whole, acknowledged trigger warnings are real, trigger warnings are necessary, but there seemed to be some moments where even the people who, you know, benefited from said trigger warnings were becoming a little uh, fatigued by someone thinking for them and assuming what would or would not be offensive to these people. Um, did that kind of ring from anywhere specific? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, I'm a big proponent of trigger warnings. I think that, um, and just specifically thinking about art, I think everyone has a right to encounter art on their own terms um, in a way that they feel prepared to do so. Um, you know, I include just thinking about my plays posted on New Play Exchange or whatever, I certainly write about intense topics. I always um, am very careful, even just in the synopses of my pieces of including content warnings, um, you know, but I do think there is this, of course, duality um, and <laughs> of, you know, they're important uh, for people who, you know, to have, you know, it's not just about comfort, right? It's about mental and emotional safety. Um, but at the same time, it can just that this sense that it can be frustrating to to need one. It can be it can be frustrating and a reminder of the um, of the issue itself in a way that is harmful in its own way. Just to you know feel like okay, I, well, I I need this is you know because society sort of sees it as a sign of weakness yeah. and it's, you know, in the media, there is sort of that stigma attached to, um, uh, you know, mental health in general. What I thought was also interesting is you, uh, you made it a point to not only bring that to light, but to also highlight that not all of these characters fit in a box. There is, you know, one of the beehive characters, um, you know, says, Hey, it's actually really helpful for me to, you know, refer to these certain topics as this, you know, fill in the blank. Is everyone okay with that? And another character saying, oh, well, that thing actually does affect me. So it, I think it's hard sometimes in writing to not paint everybody, you know, if you're trying to highlight a group, not making the group unanimous. And I think you did a wonderful job of really highlighting the fact that even if someone is sharing a similar trauma or a similar experience or a similar, uh, you know, classification, not everybody is going to fit in the same box and not everybody is going to have the same hurts and not everyone's going to have the same helps either. So that was really powerful for me going through that. Great. Um, Thank you. So, um, so beyond us, what is your, kind of end goal for this piece what is what is your hope in terms of staging producing uh and what do you want the final product to kind of look like yeah you know i think um i think like i said i um i'm really interested in, in continuing to find collaborators for this piece 
um, and to really get into, you know, sort of an, an intense workshop, um, not, you know, long, long term, but just uh, <laughs> a rehearsal process that involves a few, a few rehearsals and just uh, an ability to really play with the language, specifically that, um, you know, the language of the beehive, of the choral aspect of it, um, and just to be able to come in and out of rehearsal with sort of different ideas and different pages, um, and to really sit down and talk with a, a director um, about what, uh, you know, just to kind of talk through what could that online world look like, um, just based on what's written so far. And I, I'm a big fan of just what ifs when it comes to play development yeah. conversations. Um, I, I love I love getting and hearing a lot of ideas. I know people don't like being told what, um, you know, how to rewrite their play, but I, f I find that I'm very good actually. I just wanna hear a lot of ideas and I feel like I'm pretty good at filtering out the ones that I don't, I don't want to listen to, or, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I'd, I'd rather get more feedback, especially at this stage in the, in the play's life than, than less feedback. Yeah. Um, and in terms of what it might look like in production, you know, I think it's, um, I think with a, with a play that's so about this virtual world and, and connection through the digital, um, I, you know, I'm sure there's in some ways from a design aspect, um, there's an impulse to incorporate that really into the into the visual design of the piece um, in terms of projections and sound and whatnot. Um, part of me is curious both what the play might look like in that um, in that world, uh, really highlighting that digital element. Um, and then part of me is curious what it would look like, very kind of analog, just sort of bodies in the space um, and the the text sort of creating that that digital space um, and sound. So I think another thing that I'd also love to do is have yeah, a conversation with um, a designer I trust um, or various designers I trust about um, what could, what are sort of different ideas for what this piece could look like. Well, one of the many curses of being an actor and a director is my inability to read a play without visualizing <laughs> it. Um, and I, whoever, um, whoever gets their hands on this um, certainly has an amazing challenge ahead of them, an amazing uh, visual uh, world that they can create. Um, so I want to I want to thank you for writing this. Um, I very very like I said I very much enjoyed uh, you know seeing my own some of my own experiences reflected, not necessarily exactly as they happened to me, but you know being able to see yourself uh, or even a semblance of yourself in a piece is a truly magical thing for me. Um, and another just kind of random point of accolade, I was very, very impressed by the openness of casting you put in for Karina. There is a, you know, you, you made it very, very, very easy for any director to cast whoever they felt best embodied that character. Um, I noticed there's even some dialogue in the piece that is open specifically to the casting of the person who's playing Karina uh, in terms of her race, her appearance, things like that. Um, I have, I've told this story before, um, but I've worked with a playwright who was so upset that an actor in her play wouldn't shave his beard that she felt the need to add beard related dialogue in the play <laughs> because in her mind the audience would question why a person of this uh 
you know, this era and this state and this year would have a beard. And all she did was severely limit the future casting of that character if that play is produced elsewhere. Um, so I think it's it's always a wonderful, weird line. Um, and do you, well, I guess I'll ask, I'll wrap up with this. Is that something that you do often in your writing? Because it's it can't be easy to leave so much of a character open to any uh, director's casting. Uh, and yeah. still have a full rounded character. Yeah. You know, and I, I try as much as possible, like I said, just kind of writing folks who, I'm going to use the phrase I keep using, who live at specific identity crossroads. Um, you know, I try as much as possible to really write from a place of specificity. Um, and I think in the plays that I have, for me, there's always a tension of, um, uh, making sure to honor that specificity, but also, um, uh, you know, I guess figuring out when when is it important or what are the important must-haves. Um, and uh, usually if I'm not sure about something like that, uh, I, I have to do some more thinking about what is the story I wanna tell um, and what am I actually trying to achieve with this play? And once I've answered that, it becomes clear, um, I guess, yeah, the degree of specificity an actor might need to have um, in order to play a role or the degree of, of openness to that. And I've definitely, you know, made changes to pieces as they've gone through different development processes and have totally either um, really specified or honed in on certain identity aspects or um, kind of on the, on the converse opened things up in a way um, because it didn't necessarily help the specific story I was trying to tell. Um, so it's something I'm definitely always very conscious of um, and that I think is important. My goal is always is to not write from uh, a place of neutrality, um, that even if there are characters who could be played by people of multiple um, races or genders or other identifiers, um, that uh, I'm not, not keeping it open to keep the character neutral, that there is something still specific about them and their experience that I'm uh, telling with the story. Well, it absolutely came through and i you know after having read it i'm very very excited to see the next stage in this play's life um but before we wrap up today i always like to uh end my interviews with a fun little theater related question um okay. so i'm gonna dust off an old chestnut and uh kind of expand it a little for the new year since it's been uh, like i said about a year <laughs> since we've done this um so tonight um I've been, I tend to, you know, I, we always like to say um, at Elephant Room Productions, drink theater responsibly. Um, so I have been enjoying a sugar-free rum and coke uh, because, <laughs> you know, gotta, gotta keep the health kick somewhere. Um, and I always like to throw this kind of curveball out at, you know, if you could share a drink with any play character, any character from any play, who would it be? I'm going to twist it a little um, and make it even harder. If you could plan a cocktail party oh, wow. with any two with any two to three characters of any era, who would it be? Because normally I always pick Auntie Mame as my drinking buddy, but <laughs> I, I have to wonder what it would be like if I was hanging out with her, Dolly Levi, and let's say Martha from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. George does uh -huh. not get to come along for uh, this journey. Um, 
I will, I, I can very easily give you a moment and stall because I just sprung a very specific and weird <laughs> question on you. Sure. Yeah. Oh man, that's, <laughs> that is quite a question. And I mean, you know, it's the, what kind of evening, what kind of a cocktail party do you want to have? Right. Because if yeah, it I guess is, how, it, how classy do you want to yeah. go with the evening and how debaucherous do you want to go yeah. with the evening? Or if, uh, I mean, I, uh, you know, or, or if you want to survive the night, if you're thinking about, for example, George and Martha from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is, uh, you know, the couple that comes to mind when I think of cocktail parties. Um, I, I think I would be interested in having a conversation with them because I, I saw, you know, as I used to be a big fan of, of that play and all these work. Um, would you see through their, uh, their, their ruse? Their ruse. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I would like to have a conversation with them and maybe another contemporary famous um, <laughs> alcoholic couple um, just to see, uh, just to, uh, you know, just to, just to see how relevant they still feel that their that, that play is, um, you know, you know, what I, you know what years down the line. I would love to, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who has not read this, I'd say 50 odd year play, um, but George and Martha are kind of full of shit. Um, so wouldn't it be fun to put them in a room with Evan Hansen and see who could out BS each other? <laughs> that would be interesting. Well, <laughs> he could definitely outsing them. So yep. fair. That is fair. Um, well, Nick, thank you so, so much for coming on and chatting with me today. Thank you again for sharing this piece with us. Um, like I said, it was very eye-opening. It was very inspiring. And I'm I'm very happy to have it. And I'm very happy to see uh, where it's going to go next. So thank you so much, Nick. Great. Thank you so much again for the opportunity. Well, that is all we have for tonight. Um, again, thank you. Um, thank you for supporting Elephant Room Productions as always. And thank you to everyone in the theater community for having each other's back over this past year. Uh, it has not been an easy one for uh, anyone. Uh, but the theater community at large um, is so much bigger than any obstacle that can come in their way. Uh, so until next time, thank you for joining us at The Trumpet. My name is Robert Jean Pileccio, signing off.